Okay. Well, some of you said you have no doubts, which is interesting because if one actually has no doubts, then one will be experiencing transcendental ecstasy at every moment. Because Krishna says if you know him uh, fully, without doubting, if you're completely, actually completely convinced, then you will be experiencing Krishna's presence at every moment and you'll be swimming in the sea of ecstasy. So it's actually helpful. Oh, I should say what this is for this recording, right? This is October 31st, 2011 in Home Program in Auckland. So one thing that's actually important is to be honest with ourselves about what we do have doubts about. You know, if, if there's really something bothering you and you go to the doctor and you say, no, nothing's bothering me, uh, then they may not be able to help you. So the practical evidence as to whether or not we have doubts or questions is to what extent we're experiencing unlimited, ever-expanding, transcendental ecstasy. If we're not, then we're holding back in some way. And why are we holding back? Because we have some kind of fear or some kind of concern. Otherwise, why would I hold back? Krishna consciousness, one person said they want to advance more quickly. Advancement in Krishna consciousness comes with faith, with increasing confidence. Now, faith is not just something intellectual. Yes, I believe everything. It's, it's something in the heart. Oh, I believe that's a strong bridge, but will I walk on it? <laughs> you know, so under, when we talk about understanding the philosophy, it's not just an intellectual thing. And it's, it's very helpful. If you want to make quick advancement, it's very helpful to spend some time with yourself. I mean, like I asked you to fill out something anonymously. It's not something you have to post on your Facebook page or send all your friends or put up on your wall. But something that where you can at least... Look in yourself. What is it that's holding me back? What is it I have some doubt about? I mean, and I've, I've seen that among practitioners of Krishna consciousness, there tend to be some frequent doubts, <laughs> tend to be some recurring doubts. But I really like one person here wrote something just wonderful. And this is something that I've also had a doubt about and, and a question about. That when I drive for hours in the countryside, I can't believe how many blades of grass there are and that each has a soul. In addition, the billions of germs. So I've thought about that too. You know, if every living being has a soul, if every living being is a soul, how many souls are there? It's uncountable. You know, just the amount of cells in, in our bodies and the amount of germs and microbes in this room is some humongous number. And, you know, when we think about the whole planet, it becomes mind-boggling. And then if you think about that according to the Shastra, every planet in this universe is inhabited. I imagine how many living entities there are. And then there's more than one universe, and this is a small universe. And then we're told that there's three times as many living entities in the spiritual world. I mean, the questions that come up for me about that is, that many living entities fell from the spiritual world and came to this material world? That's a lot. And how does Krishna have a relationship with all those living entities? You know, usually in the Shastra we read just about the most prominent. Now, Radharani's there with Lalita and Vishaka. Even in the works of the Goswamis, mm -hmm. you won't find very much description of 
even some of the most prominent gopis like Indulekha or Chitra, Sudevi, little something here and there, what to speak of all of the different gopis and all of the different cowherd boys. And we hear that Krishna has a relationship with each one. Each one has a personal relationship. Like Sanatana Goswami says in Brihad Bhagavatamrita, that each of the cowherd boys and men, they're thinking, I'm Krishna's favorite. And they actually are. (laughs) That each one of them is Krishna's favorite. And they feel that way. So, I mean, I find this to be, intellectually, I can't understand this at all. The the number is just, just, gets too big. There's uh, some children's books that talk about numbers. You know, they'll show a picture or give some description. What is a thousand? What is a million? What is a trillion? I was seeing one video about the United States debt, you know, the trillions of dollars, and they show you some animated of all these dollar bills, you know, stacks of hundred dollar bills, and how big a trillion is, and you're just like, it, it becomes incomprehensible. So if I can't really understand a trillion or three trillion, then I just can't understand the number of souls. So I personally deal with, with doubts like this by just saying there's a limit to the capacity of my mind. You know, I have a certain, the human mind has a certain limited capacity. And when it comes to understanding things such as no beginning, I can sort of kind of get no end, but I really can't get the no beginning. My, my mind just can't grasp it. Everything has a beginning in my material experience or when it comes to some huge numbers like this. And how can there be gazillion, million, billion, zillion, trillion souls who all have a personal relationship with the Lord? I, I, just, I just can't get it. So I deal with it like that. With, and I know uh, Rita Anandamar says that we shouldn't answer questions too much by playing the inconceivable card. You know, if you, if you play the inconceivable, you understand what I'm saying? If you play the inconceivable card too much, it's kind of like cheating. Oh, well, that's inconceivable. Well, that's inconceivable. Well, that's inconceivable. Well, then you can't really answer anything. But there are some things that are just inconceivable that my, my mind is not able to grasp. I was talking about the beginning and end. So if you say that the spiritual world is unlimited, it goes on forever, it has no end, I can't get that. I just can't make a mental picture of worlds that have no end. Which means, of course, there's living entities without end there. But then, conversely, if you were to say to me, well, suppose it has an end, then what's the problem with that? What immediately happens? Suppose we said, okay, it has an end, there's a boundary. What problem do you have immediately? I'm asking. How it can be eternal, right? But even the picture. Make a mental picture. You've got a universe with an end. What what's the problem do you have? What's the first question? When will it end? Where where will it end? Oh, when will it end? When will it end? And how it will end. How it will end. Mm-hmm. Well, I wasn't talking about end in time, end in space. So if I say that this, this the spiritual world goes on forever in space, it has no limit. If I say it's limited, what will your question be? What's beyond? What's beyond? 
Exactly. So either way, it's inconceivable. If we were to be told, oh, okay, there, there's a limit in space, immediately, well, what's on the other side? I can't, I can't actually conceive of something that has a limit. That doesn't make sense either. And if I say it has no limit, I can't understand it. So we have to admit that we have a certain degree of insufficiency of understanding and that there are certain things that are inconceivable. But as I say, I don't like to, to uh, just pull out the inconceivable card all the time. I'd say rather than trying to really comprehend the large number of living entities that are on this one planet or even in this one country or even in this one room, <laughs> rather we can appreciate that every living entity is individual. To me, that's more of an inconceivability than that there's so many of them. That each one is unique. And this uniqueness of the living entity is really at the heart of our Krishna conscious philosophy, that we're all persons. And to really meditate on how we're unique. The pastime where this is best exhibited is where Lord Brahma steals the boys and the calves. Are you familiar with this story? So Brahma sees Krishna, actually he saw Krishna killing Agasura, and then Agasura eventually taking a four-handed form and attaining to Vaikuntha. So Lord Brahma was kind of confused about a number of things. How could this little boy be Narayan, his father? Didn't look like his father. <laughs> And how could he liberate Agasura? And, and he wasn't really acting like Lord Narayan. He's just sitting with him. I mean, he knows Lord Narayan as Yagya Purush, who's being offered everything and sacrificed very gorgeously. And here Krishna's sitting with his cowherd boyfriends. And you know what they're doing? They're doing things like taking the vegetables out of the samosas and putting flowers in instead. <laughs> and then giving it to another boy and they're biting into these flowers. And they're saying, hey, look at the monkey. And the boys turn around and they grab their food. You know, they're, they're playing like children. And they're saying, hey, Krishna, look what my mother gave me. Catch! You know, that's not usually how we make an offering. Could you imagine going to your altar and saying, hey, Gorni Tai, catch this! You know. <laughs> so that's what they were doing. And, and Krishna was eating with his left hand. Lord Brahma saw that Krishna had food in his left hand. You could, you could see the food was sticking out between his petal-like fingers I thought this isn't right he's eating with his left hand and throwing the food around and joking with the boys yes, well let's see is he really Narayan what will he do if I steal his boys and calves so he did that he put them in a cave and after a year he came back and he found that they were all identical ones so Lord Brahma entered into Samadhi and he, by meditating, he tried to understand what was happening. And he couldn't understand it. He tried, and he, he became so confused trying to understand the situation that he almost lost the power to see and to think. Now, why was it so confusing? What was so confusing about the fact that there was an identical set of boys and calves? So there's an identical set. Why is this so bewildering to Lord Brahma? Why is it so upsetting to him? Well, he, was con he was convinced that he knew where they were. The other set of boys and cows. So he was 
incomprehensible. Okay, but why couldn't there just be two sets? It's inconceivable. <laughs> 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 it manifests so many perfect forms, exactly the same. Okay, but what exactly is inconceivable about there being two sets? One in the cave where he put them, and one playing with Krishna. Because he was going up in the, uh, to his abode where he put all the covered boys to sleep. Yes. And he couldn't get this. How come they are again here? Same. Why couldn't there just be two sets? Because, yeah, he was doing that. He was going back and forth, and he thought maybe Krishna's just moving them back and forth really quickly, or one set must be fake. Why did he think that? Why was he convinced that there couldn't be two sets? I think um, there are no two individuals the same. Exactly. So that's actually more, much more inconceivable than how many individuals there are, is the fact that no two individuals could be the same. By the way, were these second set, were they exactly the same? They weren't exactly the same. There was a difference. They were more attractive. They were more attractive, yes. Because they weren't jivas, they were Vishnu. And therefore the mothers and fathers, and the mother and father humans, and the mother and also animals, were much more attracted to these offspring than to their own natural offspring. So there was actually a difference. Another difference is that for that year, the cowherd boys didn't come home and say, guess what Krishna did today? Usually every day they came home and say, guess what Krishna did today? I was just talking with one devotee who says that she does that every day in her life, how Krishna is acting in her life. When she goes to bed that night, she says, now what did Krishna do today in my life? I thought that was really nice. But during that year, the cowherd boys did not come home one time and say, guess what Krishna did today? Because they were all Krishna. So we're each a unique individual. And the soul that's inside every germ and every blade of grass is a unique individual. Now what does this mean for us practically? How can we use this knowledge? That means I have something special that nobody else has. Prabhupada says, everyone has some extraordinary talent, and to serve Krishna with that, your extraordinary talent is perfection of life. There's something about me that no other living entity has, which is why Krishna is so anxious to have us be back with him. He misses, he genuinely misses us. Although he can create a replica of us that's actually himself, if he wants to, as he showed in that pastime. It's not exactly the same, it's not us. He misses us. He misses the relationship he can have only with us. You know, we talk about that there's different groups of cowherd boys, different groups of cows, different groups of gopis, and you can categorize them. You know, there's left-wing gopis and there's right-wing gopis. You know, there's some who have a more submissive temperament and some who have a more argumentative temperament. And then within that category, there's some who are younger and some who are a little older and some who are a little older. Rupa Goswami gives all these different categories, categories and subcategories and subcategories and subcategories. And you keep going sub, 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 and finally you get to individuals who have their own unique blend of characteristics. 
I mean, just like understanding our material personality, we can use astrology or palmistry, or you can use some of the personality profiles like Myers-Briggs, and you can make general categories. You know, some of them use four categories. We talk about the Varnas. Those are general categories. But is it that every Brahmana is the same as every other Brahmana? No. Or every person who has Leo rising is the same as every other person with... No. I think every 23,000 years you get another person with the same astrological chart, but they'd still be a little different person. It would still combine in a different way. So this secret that we are each unique individuals provides the key for our advancing in Krishna consciousness. Because the way I advance Krishna consciousness, Krishna explains this so nicely in the Bhagavad Gita. He explains it in the third chapter and again in the 18th chapter. He says that each of us has our own nature. Now there Krishna is speaking about our conditioned nature. Not speaking about our ultimate spiritual identity. But even our conditioned nature is individual. Which I find even more amazing. I mean, okay, I'm an individual soul and I have an individual personality and characteristics and likes and dislikes. Sometimes devotees think, well, if you're really spiritual, you won't have any personal likes and dislikes. No, the more spiritually advanced you are, the more you're going to have individual likes and dislikes and be aware of them. Each cowherd boy, each gopi has their favorite food. They have their favorite color. Their favorite kind of music, their favorite kind of dancing, their favorite kind of everything. said that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, when he would serve, he would give each one their favorite food. Or Krishna, as soon as Mother Yasoda leaves the room, he takes different food off his plate and he gives each person their favorite food. He doesn't want Mother Yasoda to see because she doesn't want him seeing. She doesn't want to see that he's taking things off of his plate. So that's amazing. But you would think that when we're all materially covered, that we'd all be more or less the same. But we're not. We each have different fingerprints, different DNA, even identical twins have different DNA and different fingerprints. And we each have a body and a mind that's a slightly different combination of the modes of material nature than anybody else's. You know, just with these three modes, Krishna's mixing up all these different colors. I mean, we talk about 8,400,000, but that's just the general species. Then within each, we're all individuals. Right? None of us have exactly the same shape, nose, and eyes as somebody else, and we don't have exactly the same material personality. Our personality in this life is just temporary, just like this body is temporary. And each life we take on another kind of personality and another kind of body. And each one of them is different. So Krishna says everyone has their own nature. And he says, first of all, you can't take on the duties of someone else's nature. That even if you think you can do it perfectly, it's actually dangerous to try to follow somebody else's path. It's like if you have a motorcycle and you try to drive it like it's a boat. It won't work very well. Right? If you try to pretend to be somebody else. Like I remember seeing one woman, actually a couple, who had plastic surgery, and it's not that they just look beautiful, they just look odd, you know, they just kind of look like this. It doesn't look youthful, it just looks kind of massive. So to pretend to be somebody else looks phony, or to act as if you're somebody else. It doesn't, really, it doesn't really work. So Krishna says, no, that's not what you do. He said, well, he said, your choice is, use your nature for me or use your nature for your own ego. 
says, if you use your nature for me, you'll become successful. If you use your nature for your own ego, you'll be lost. That's your option. And what surrender means is I figure out what my nature is in this life, and I use that for Krishna. And if I do that, the miracle is that gradually I'll stop identifying with that material nature, that upadi, sarva, padi, madir, muktam. I'll become liberated from that. And I'll start to find out who I really am. Now that seems, well, sort of a little contradictory. This particular designation that I have, this false designation, this false upadi, my particular personality and inclination in this life. You know, it starts with the basic thing. Am I male or female? Then what nationality am I? What culture am I? What do I like to do? What am I good at? What are my dreams and hopes and aspirations? Those are all false designations. It would seem that the way to get rid of your false designations is, well, just don't do any of those things. But ironically, the way to get rid of the false designations is to use them in Krishna's service. To be fully who we are materially. <laughs> the false identity in Krishna's service is what dissolves the false identity. Isn't that interesting? And I see so many people take up Krishna consciousness that don't understand that. They think, I should do things that I don't like. I should do things that are against my nature. If if I do the things I like, well, then I'll like them. And then I'll be a sense enjoyer. But the point is, I can't offer Krishna something that's not mine. I have to act according to something. I can't just stop acting. Krishna says it also. He said, you can't be inactive even for a moment. So I have to do something. And if I don't act according to my nature, well, whose nature am I going to act according to? I'm going to pretend that I'm going to act according to someone else's nature? Then I'm offering their thing. Like, this is not my house. I can't say, Krishna, I'm going to offer you this house. It's not mine to offer. (laughs) I have to offer Krishna my house. Well, if, if I say, if I go to Kalasambara, I say, Kalasambara, I offer you that car that's on the street, but it's not mine. That's not surrender. Well, Kalas, if you like, you can take that car. Surrender is when I offer him my car. So if, I, if in the name of surrender I pretend to be something that I'm not, I'm not surrendering anything. It's all phony. It's not authentic. Why do I have this particular nature? Because of my attachments in my previous life. This is explained also in 13, 15, chapter Bhagavad I get a particular senses grouped around the mind. Because I have certain attachments, therefore I've gotten certain talents and certain proclivities and certain personality in a certain body. Therefore, when I use my nature in Krishna's service, I'm offering Krishna my greatest attachments. That's a real offering, isn't it? If you, you know, to give somebody your favorite piece of clothing, the thing that's most dear to you, that you're most attached to, who's going to give that away? 
So this identity that we have, this is a result of our... I give that to Krishna. I use that for Krishna's pleasure instead of mine. Of course, when you use it for Krishna's pleasure, you also enjoy. It's pleasurable using ourself for Krishna's pleasure. Krishna wants to see that we're happy. He doesn't want us to be miserable. He's not cruel. And then as we do that, then all those false things disappear. We start to realize that all this proclivities that we have, all this nature we have due to our previous material attachments, that they're not our real self, that these all things are all gifts by Krishna, given by Krishna, part of Krishna. They become spiritualized, 424, everything merges into transcendence, and then our real individuality can blossom. So this is one of the, the best-kept secrets to quick advancement. Some of you also wrote here, I'd like to advance more quickly. I'd like to be able to find more time for reading. I'd like to be able to find more time for chanting. So a lot of this comes when we're doing things that we're, when we're doing things for Krishna that work with us, that we really enjoy doing. Then Krishna consciousness in general is less of a struggle. Then it becomes what it's supposed to be, something very natural. I mean, obviously, there's some degree of struggle with the mind and senses. Some of you wrote about struggles with lust and with anger. That's to be expected, that we're going to have some struggle with lust and with anger. That's, that's normal, that's natural. That takes some time to abate. And, and one of you wrote about feeling that I'm not a worthy person. So rather than becoming <coughs> discouraged at times when we're not able to control our lust or our anger, if we focus on being for Krishna who we are and actually relishing and rejoicing in who we are, then these other things become much easier to control. Why? Because we're so satisfied. That's ultimately what we're looking for, being fully authentic. You know, in the, uh, last night I asked, I don't know if you were all there, but I asked people to take some time and write, what would I like to offer to Srila Prabhupada? What would I like to do for Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's mission if, I had no, if there were no impediments, if I had whatever money and talents and facilities that I, that I could ask for? And that kind of exercise is another way of coming to authenticity. What do I really want to do? If I could do anything I wanted, what would I do? And you may be surprised that Krishna will help you fulfill your dream. So this is what we talk about self-realization, finding out who we are. It's not that being a devotee of Krishna means that everybody has to be like everybody else. I mean, everyone has to chant 16 rounds and offer their food, but we should each do that individually and allow people to be who they are individually. Well, then you may also have an objection and say, well, I don't like who I am. (laughs) I'm not satisfied with the kind of personality that I have. I wish I were another kind of personality. So whatever kind of material personality we have, it has its 
ups and downs, its good sides and its bad sides. I was talking to one devotee today who said, I'm very determined or maybe very stubborn. <laughs> so all of our material qualities are like that. They're like, you know, am I cautious or am I just kind of scared? <laughs> am I a really careful person or, or just kind of a hesitant person? So sometimes our caution may be a really good thing, like when we're balancing the accounts. And sometimes our caution might not be a good thing when it comes out time to go preach to somebody. Oh, I don't know if I want to preach to somebody. So all of our material qualities are like that. They're good qualities in some situations, and they're going to be impediments in other situations. But rather than trying to have some sort of perfect material personality, which is just not possible, because every weakness, when used this way, is a strength, and every strength when looked this way is a weakness. All, all of our strengths are weaknesses in certain situations, and all of our weaknesses are strengths in certain situations. So rather than looking for a situation that's all strength, we just take whatever we have. If you want to you know, get a better material personality or a different material personality, you just have to take another birth to try that one out. So to take some time, what do I really like doing? What kind of thing makes me feel very authentic and makes me feel very alive? In what situations have I been in? You can even, even not even think in terms of just in Krishna consciousness, but in general in my life. I remember once going to an Ayurvedic doctor in India, and he said, what kind of situations make you feel the most happy? He said, and don't tell me a specific spiritual situation, just any kind of situation. Maybe before you came to Krishna consciousness. What, how did, where did you feel the most happy? I said, sitting in the woods by a stream of running water. Say, what kind of, where, where do I feel, okay, I'm energized. The right situation for, for each of us is something like the right kind of food for each of us. You know how certain kinds of food, you eat it and you feel energized, and other kinds of food you eat it and you have to go to sleep? <laughs> and you're kind of groggy and you can't think straight. And that's different for each person. The kind of food that energizes you may put me to sleep, and the kind of food that makes me feel feel energized may make you feel groggy and vice versa. That's the whole science of Ayurveda. And Ayurveda is also predicated on this idea of individuality. You know, modern Western medicine says there's one normal. There's one normal weight for your height. I mean, I have really small bones and if I weighed the normal weight for my height, I would be very flabby. My bones are so small, I just can't carry a lot of weight. So modern science says everybody has the same normal. And Ayurveda says, no, there's many kinds of normal. There's three main types, and you can combine them into nine types, and again, 81. And each person has their own optimum health and their own optimum diet. You know, the kind of things that you see in the West, that everyone should take this herb. (laughs) That's not Ayurveda. Ayurveda, it's individualized. So just like each of us have a, a certain diet and certain exercise regimen, and certain lifestyle, even certain time to go to bed, that's optimum for ourselves, even certain colors. So in a similar way, each of us has a certain type of work that's perfect for us. That, and, you, and you know you found it, just like you know you've eaten food that's healthy for you, when after eating you feel energized. I remember one time in Mayapur, the devotees served a feast, cooked all according to Ayurvedic principles, all with locally grown Bengali food. And it was a big feast. 
a lot of preparations and even sweet rice. And afterwards, I felt like I could run around the whole property. You ever seen little calves after they drink milk? And then they start jumping and running? (laughs) So the right kind of food should make us feel like that. And the right kind of engagement should make us feel like that. You should find a service to do that we, where we feel like jumping and running, where we regret having to go to sleep, where the only reason we go to sleep is we get physically tired, where the, the, the service makes us feel emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually energized. And this is for everything we're doing. Speaking to one devotee in the community, who was telling me how he really doesn't like his job. He doesn't like the nature of the job where he has to pretend that he's not a devotee and he doesn't like just the job itself. He said, even if people at work are talking about work, I'm just bored. He said, and what I'm finding is that because I'm so unhappy at work, everything else is suffering. He said, I'm I'm being mean to my wife and snapping at her even when she's hardly done anything wrong. I'm finding it hard to chant my rounds. It's kind of like when your physical health isn't good, it's hard to do anything else, right? If you have some kind of disease or sickness. So if we're not properly aligned with our nature, then everything else becomes more difficult. So I said to him, well, what do you like to do? He said, I really like to study Shastra and teach Shastra. But I don't know how I could maintain my family like that. I said, well, you know, no, Krishna can do anything. He said, oh, maybe in a year I could start. I said, do you have two hours a week? He said, yeah. I said, what could you do with two hours a week? And I was talking to another lady this morning, and she said, this is what I really want to do. This is my dream. So the same thing. She said, you know what I'm doing every day? It just makes me feel tired. <laughs> I said, what would you like to do? Oh, this is my dream like this and like this, but I can't do it. I need money. I said, is there some part of your dream you could do now without money? What could you start with now? And I asked her the same question. She said, I have no time. I said, you have two hours a week. Yeah, two hours a week. What could you start with? You know, some of you probably was talking about these books (coughs) that we did. So this was a, a very interesting experience for me doing these books. I'd always had a dream that I wanted to produce Krishna Conscious Curriculum for children. And I thought that that would be a very difficult job. I thought I'd have to have at least 10 to 20 million dollars. At least. We'd have to have a big building, have 250 employees, all kinds of equipment, and then of course they have to live somewhere, and have to, have to be in a community where there's a school and so many problems. And I'd written up business plans and presented them to rich devotees, and <laughs> you know, nothing had really, it was one year when one ISKCON leader gave some money for curriculum development and we started on it and then the money dried up. And that's what I thought for so many years. And then one day, through a series of, because of a series of frustrations, basically, I finally said, okay, Krishna, I surrender. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to wait anymore. I'm just going to start. And one of my friends said, why don't you start with something small that you can do with the resources you have, that you can finish in a short amount of time, that's complete by itself and other people can build on. I thought, oh, I know what that is. I thought, what do I need? I thought, I need a chair, a desk, and an internet connection. 
That's all, you know. And someone to give me some kitchery every once in a while. And leave me alone. Oh, that was the other thing. People have to leave me alone, not ask me to do this and that and the other thing. And I started putting together a festival book, which I could do without any help, although Krishna did send me some help. And without any money, I could distribute electronically. And in about a week, I could get a book done. So I did about four of those, and then someone came to me and said, Hey, Irma, I was thinking I'd really like to produce children's books. I could help you get started. And it, it snowballed to the fact that Pranipu said, Okay, you can come to New Zealand and work here. And altogether, 200 people worked on the books. And we did something that would have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars with mostly volunteer labor or donations. And a lot of people paid for things directly. <laughs> A lot of times I really didn't even need to see any money. People said, oh, I'll pay this, I'll pay this artist, I'll do this. I'll take care of that. I'll pay your ticket to China to meet the artist. Oh, I know of some good artists over there, or I'll do this. And it all happened. It was like, wow. Never did get the $10 million. <laughs> And I didn't need it. And it was nice when I was doing that. I, I, I was, it was hard. But I was thinking, this is exactly what fits me. And it was wonderful. And I didn't know when we were when I was sitting here in Auckland working on them, I didn't know if it would ever get off my computer. I thought it might end up just little files on my computer. I didn't know if it'd ever get illustrated or published or anything, or even if it would be any good. <laughs> People might look at it and say, Well, that's awful. And you can say, Oh, Mila, that's you, but no, that's for all of us. Prophet says everyone has some extraordinary talent. Everyone. We all have a dream. <coughs> Yeah, we all have we all have a dream, something that we'd love to do. Every one of us. Maybe you've forgotten what it is. Maybe you thought it was impossible. Maybe you thought you'd need ten million dollars and two hundred fifty people to do it, so you just kind of put it under the rug and go on every day and oh, just go on every day. And take it out from under the rug, dust it off. Do something. What wonderful thing would you like to do for Krishna? Where you'd really be using all of your talents. That doesn't have to be a big thing. It'd be a small thing. That gets started. Do something that you really love, that you can pour your heart into. And maybe Krishna will even have it be the way that you can maintain yourself. He's clever. He's not limited. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to quit your job and sell your house and run, but then we'll start. An hour a week, two hours a week, start working on your dream. Whatever you can do. What can I do today? What can I do this week that's my dream, that I want to do, that makes me feel alive, that I just love, that when I'm doing this for Krishna, I just like, this, this is me. That challenges you in the right way. And yeah, there'll be obstacles and there'll be difficulties and sometimes things won't work out right and sometimes it'll seem that you're not getting anywhere near your dream <laughs> and other people may criticize you and other people may tell you it's impossible but that's the real offering to Krishna actually Atmanivedanam that's the real offering first I have to offer Krishna my false self <laughs> I have to authentically offer Krishna my false self <laughs> this body and this mind and this propensities and this attachments that I have, I have to offer that to Krishna. Not pretend that I don't have any. 
Not pretend that I don't have any personality, not pretend that I don't have any attachments, not pretend that I have somebody else's personality, not pretend that I have what I think would be a better personality to have. Well, see, devotees are supposed to be like this, so I'll pretend to be like that. And as we do that, then gradually we start to see that it's really not about so much just offering Krishna things that I enjoy in the world, but my relationship with Krishna. It starts to be more about my relationship with Krishna. And gradually, one's real self starts to emerge. Gradually, one finds, oh, this is who I really am in the spiritual world. So therefore, we call this Keval Anandakanda. It's joyful from beginning to end. This is the process of bhakti. There are other processes that are not joyful from beginning to end. This other process is called the yoga ladder. The yoga ladder means, first I become a pious person. I perform my varnashram duties. This is all nicely explained in the 12th chapter. I I perform my varnashram duties for my own satisfaction in a pious way. I amass pious credits. By these pious credits, I start engaging in karma palatyaga. The purpose of karma is to go to heaven or have heaven in this earth, to go to swarga or in this earth have a very wonderful spouse and a beautiful house and intelligent children who win awards and lots of fame and lots of money and good health and as much swarga as I can get on this earth as possible. Live in New Zealand or come to Hawaii. (laughs) But there's even, you know, the Europeans brought mosquitoes to Hawaii. It's kind of a shame. So to give up that desire for enjoyment and to just work instead for purification. Then to go from there to realizing the self. Then to go from there to meditating on the self. So the yoga ladder process is just get rid of the upadis. So think of it like, you know, right now our hands are full of these false designations. So the yoga ladder process is get rid of this false designation, get rid of this false designation, get rid of this false designation, my hands are empty. Then try to take up bhakti after you're purified. The bhakti process is very different. The bhakti process says, okay, I have these false designations. Let me replace that with something transcendental. Let me transcend. So my hands are always full. So we, we take the false things, use it in Krishna's service. They regain their spiritual nature. And we never at any point should be empty. We should always feel full and therefore always feel satisfied as our material attachment gradually become spiritualized. And if we do that, then the process of bhakti is much easier and much faster and much more pleasant than chanting 16 rounds, dealing with our lust and anger, reading Srila Prabhupada's books, becomes much easier because we're in a, in a proper, natural situation. And if anyone tells you that this is not real surrender, just smile at them and say thank you. And go on. You know, if you really want to get challenging, you could say, excuse me, where, where is the verse in the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna says, act like someone else's nature is surrender and do something that you're not good at and that you hate and that you're not enlightened. Can you show me where that verse is, please, in the Bhagavad Gita, if you want to be challenging? If you don't want to be challenging, you can just say, oh, thank you very much. Now, Krishna emphasizes this point again in the 18th chapter, so, you know, all good teachers, first of all, they repeat the important points. 
and they make sure that they summarize them at the end. So Krishna at the end summarizes the whole Bhagavad Gita, and he specifically summarizes this point from the third chapter, has an almost identical series of verses, where he says, you can't do somebody else's duty. You can't be inactive. Whatever your nature is, do it for me and you'll become successful. Or do it for Maya and you'll be lost. Those are your two choices. That's it. Those are the only choices you have. And don't do your duty for mundane dharma. Do your duty as an offering to me. Sarva dharma and prachetya. Do it just to please me. Do your duty just to please me. And if there's any discrepancy, there's any discrepancy, I'll take care of that. Don't worry. Every endeavor is covered by fault, right? Like smoke is covering fire. There's always going to be some fault. Don't worry about it. Just do it for me. So this is the, the beauty of our Krishna consciousness movement. Not just that there's so many souls, but that each soul is special. And I'm special. Each of us, we each have something that nobody else has. And Krishna loves the way in which we're special. And he's waiting to have an individual relationship with us. That's what he's, that's what he's looking for. So I hope this got at least most of the main points. And going back to the very beginning, if we feel we have no doubts, then we should examine, why haven't I fully absorbed myself? What's holding me back? What, what is it that I'm, that I'm afraid of or concerned about or not quite sure of? that I haven't given myself completely to Krishna. And to try to expose these, at least to some trusted person, or at least expose them to Krishna in the heart. Because as these are removed, then we will give ourselves more and more. So questions, comments? <clears throat> I know it's late. We had a late night last night. So. Discussion? And thank you all for sharing. How you were talking about sometimes we feel low and <clears throat> we start thinking, you know, that uh, around that, something like that. Um, sometimes we, f- we feel you know, like we're not worth it. I don't know how to explain it. But no, I understand what you're saying. Some... I think that's actually one of the biggest doubts that we have, that I'm not, I'm not worthy of Krishna's love. I'm not worthy to be a pure devotee. I deserve to just stay in the world and suffer. <laughs> you know, I'm, if anybody really knew what I was like, they'd never want to look at me again. That we can focus on all of our faults. And there's, it's, it's interesting because the great devotees will pray in ways that sound like that. If we read the prayers of the pure devotees, they'll say things like, no one is a greater sinner than I am. You know, and if you look at that objectively, you're sort of, what? You know, are they a mass murderer or something? Obviously not. So what do they mean by that? You know, are they just some sort of depressed person? And we know that the devotees are full of joy. Even just the Brahma Bhutta platform, you're full of joy. Brahma Bhutta, Prasanatma, what to speak of the devotees. It's just... Uh, one devotee sent me a quote from a purport third uh, third canto mm. I think it's 3.23.19 but I'm not sure anyway where it says that unless you become joyful you can't make any advancement in Krishna consciousness so 
So how is it that the devotees are joyful and yet they say such nasty things about themselves? So one clue is found in Chaitanya Charitamrita where Krishna Das Kaviraj says one of these extraordinary statements. He says, I'm so sinful that if you even say my name, you'll become sinful. He says, I'm lower than the worm in the stool. Well, that's pretty low. No, how you get much lower than that? And then he says, but I'm engaged in the service of Radhamadan Mohan. And Lord Intananda has shown me his mercy. Another example is Sarvabhama Bhattacharya. And he's talking to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and he says, you have made a crow into Garuda. Speaking about himself. So I talked about this uh, with humility in the other day, but I'll, I'll mention it again. Maybe some of you weren't there. That let's say you have $5 in your wallet and you go to the shop and you buy something and you find out later it was only worth $3. So how do you feel? Cheating. Cheating. Kind of lousy, right? <laughs> Disappointed, angry, upset. So let's say you get $5, you buy something, it's worth $5. How do you feel? Okay. Eh. Six. So you have $5, you buy something, you find out it's worth $100. How do you feel? Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so the less qualified we feel, the more grateful and happy we feel with the Lord's mercy. So feeling disqualified is an impetus for joy. But you've got to put it together. You've got to put together, I'm not qualified, and Krishna is wonderful and he loves me anyway. If you just have the, I'm not qualified, I'm not qualified, I'm going to have $5. What am I going to buy? You know, that, that's not going to take you anywhere. But I only have $5 in my wallet and Look what I've got. I've got an unlimited storehouse full of jewels. Like that fruit fender. Right? She just piles Krishna's hands with fruit. She turns around there's jewels. Then the, our very lack of qualification is the impetus for joy. It's not very joyful to get something you think you deserve. It's just... You know, if I spend $5 and get something worth $5, it's like, eh. It's not very exciting. What to speak of if you get, think you get less than you deserve? That's one of the big problems you see in family relationships. You know, if I start thinking my husband's not treating me as well as I deserve or my wife's not treating me as well, I'm not very happy with it. You know, she can be scrubbing every crevice in the house every day and cooking a 10-course feast. But if I think I deserve to be, you know, Indra then I'm not going to be happy. Isn't it? You know, if I think I'm Queen Cleopatra, then even if my husband buys me diamonds, I'm not going to be happy. It's, ne- it's never going to be enough. You see this sometimes in relationships. I was staying with a family once where I was this, the woman particularly was just like that. You're going out to the temple to do some service, but you haven't fixed the sink. He said, well, I just fixed the dryer, just changed the oil in the car, I just did all the shopping, took the kids out to a park, I'd like to spend some time now doing some service at the temple. But you haven't fixed the sink. 
You know, if you really love me, you wouldn't, you would, first you'd fix the sink. So then he fixes the sink. Now I'd like to go do some service. I saw this whole thing play out. You know. But what about this? She had another thing. Well, thank you for doing the sink, but the screen door needs to be fixed. I finally looked at her and I said, you know, I don't think this ever ends. At what point do you believe your husband loves you? How many things does he have to fix? Does he ever get time to, is he ever allowed to have time to himself? So she was never happy. She actually had a very nice husband, but she was never happy with him because her, you know, my deserve was this big. So, you know, the, the, the better we think we are, the more we think we do, when we're never satisfied. And the less we think we deserve, then everything Krishna gives us is a great gift. But you have to put it together. I deserve nothing, and still, look what Krishna's given me. He gave me a human body. Well, that's pretty nice. And he gave me a human body. It works pretty well. I mean, it doesn't always work perfectly, but it works fairly well. I mean, I can walk. I can move my hands. I can talk. I can think. Not always as well as I'd like, but, you know, it's functional. I've got so many nice devotee friends and wonderful books and you know, flowers. Sounds pretty nice. Do I deserve flowers? I'm a criminal, you know. I rebelled against God. You know, you never see flowers in prisons. Can you imagine you go to prison, every prisoner has a bowl of flowers. <laughs> and I'm a prisoner, and Krishna gave me flowers. That's amazing. What about the food we get to eat? Wonderful. So the less qualified you think you are, the more you can find joy in everything. I have more socks than I need. More shoes than I need. So many friends, I can't even remember all their names. How kind Krishna is. I don't deserve any friends. I don't deserve one pair of socks. And he's giving me a chance to go back to home, back to Godhead. And he hasn't thrown me out. Were any of you there at the Govardhan, at my Govardhan Puja presentation? Where that one guy asked me why Krishna hadn't thrown me out. It was really funny. That's the funniest question I've ever gotten since I, since I joined the Hare Krishna movement. He asked why hasn't Krishna thrown you out? Yeah. <laughs> 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 so you know Krishna hasn't thrown me out he keeps giving me another chance I'm sure I've offended somebody in the last week for sure definitely absolutely no doubt about it and I don't even know about it I'm so dull brained somebody's walking around thinking oh I don't know why did she say this you know and I'm not even aware of it and he hasn't thrown me out isn't that nice he's really wonderful why wouldn't I want to serve somebody like that I don't know anybody else like that everybody else I know you know they have their line it's all conditional isn't it even our family it's conditional frankly there's something that we can do where our family members will not want to deal with us anymore and they'll throw us out but Krishna never does And I, I mean, I'm such a failure. I keep trying to be a devotee, and I fail every day to be a devotee. 
Every day I wake up, I say, today I'm going to think about Krishna every minute. And five minutes later, I'm thinking about something else. Okay, now I'm going to think about Krishna. <laughs> and sometimes three hours go by. I haven't thought about Krishna for the last three hours. Try again. Or I get angry at somebody. I'm like, oh my God. And he hasn't thrown me out. He keeps accepting my service. I mean, that's pretty amazing. So that's how you deal with it. Look at the other side. I offend people. I get angry. I'm lazy. I'm irresponsible. I say I'm going to do something, I don't do it, or I don't do it well, I forget. I get frustrated. Sorry. I envy other people. And he lets me stay, and he gives me service to do. And he gives me, you know, pakoras to eat. He could just give me, you know, old bread. And he gives me flowers to wear. Nice people like you to be with. Musical instruments and kirtan. Beautiful sunrises. And he lets me serve him in his deity form and read all his pastimes and have some hope that someday I'm going to go home and be with him. Now, I don't know why he does that. You know, he should have thrown me out a long time ago. So the, the more we see our, incapa- our incapacity and our failures, the more we can have impetus for hope and, and confidence and enthusiasm. Is that all right? <coughs> Anything else? Are you satisfied or just tired or hungry? (laughs) (laughs) For myself, I think what you rightly said, the talk was more about the individual person, uh, the personality, and everything flowed in my my frequency. Because I should admit that I don't, I wish to attend more of the discourses, but today I do attend whenever Krishna allows me to do it. And today it was more of my belief and Luckily or unluckily, I read only Adhyay third of Bhagavad Gita, and where it emphasizes on the, your personality, your nature, and you have to do karma. And the other thing which I picked up from the chapter 3 is now the buzzword these days is global warming. Mm. Because in that, it tells the world that be in harmony with me, I'm providing so much everything. Yeah. Serve me, and you will have everything, everything. plenty. Everything plenty. And, I said, man, I should teach this to that Al Gore. <laughs> what you are preaching is not things, something new. Yes. This is just yes. our conscience is all marred and we can't think that it's already there. This is the basic nature. Yes. Uh, and the best part is what I learned, I mean, again, today was that our means can be, our means have to be different because we are individuals. Yes. Our approach has to be different because Yes. Most of the discourse I attend, it is a 
run of the mill, this is the way to go. And that's where, well, it's not my subhav, it's not my nature, what can I do? Yeah. And that's the struggle you go through every, every second. But thanks Madhaji, yes, thanks Prabhuji. You are, you are, us today <laughs> because everything seems to be, I think, it's more that take your own time and take your own path. Yes. Ends the yes. The path is one in the sense that it's a path of love and surrender. So in that sense, it's one path for everybody. But love by its very nature is individual. You can't say everybody is going to love in exactly the same way. That makes no sense. If we each have an individual personal relationship of love with Krishna, it will naturally flourish in its own individual way. And you can talk about certain things that are universal, like everyone should chant Hare Krishna and everyone should offer their food. And you can talk about that. Uh, But when it comes to how does that play out in your life and how does that play out in my life, again, it's going to be individual. It's quite interesting. Also, one thing that I've been researching that I hope by Krishna's grace to develop into something is the different explanations of the path of bhakti, how the path progresses. And so far I've identified 18 different descriptions of the progressive path of bhakti, how we go from being a materially conditioned soul to how one goes to being a pure devotee of Krishna. And even within these paths, there are 18 different descriptions, and you can't just, they're not just different terms for exactly the same thing. You can't take one description and just line it up with the line them all up, and that they're all talking about exactly the same thing. And some of it are talking about it from different angles of vision. Some of it are talking about the path as experienced by different people. But also within each of those, we each have our own, our somewhat own way that we're going. You know, the the terminology and the stages are general delineations. They're they're not, they're not little boxes to put yourself in or to put other people in, but they're a, some way of gauging your overall progress. And also it's interesting in the Madhurya Kadambani, of course this is also a general thing that gives us some idea. Vishnu Chakravati Thakur talks about being fixed in bhakti and being fixed in good qualities. And he also talks about how being fixed in bhakti, you get fixed in body, mind, and words. And he said usually first you're fixed in body and then finally in words and then in mind. Usually it goes in that order. But he said not necessarily. In other words, one person may have their mind fixed on Krishna before their body is fixed in external activities of devotion. How interesting. In fact, I just met someone a few days ago who's in that position. <laughs> a very unusual person. But. And generally, you'll be fixed in the qualities and then be fixed in bhakti. But some people are fixed in bhakti and then fixed in the qualities. So you might have someone who's fixed in bhakti who's not, not yet displaying all of the good qualities. And you've got some people who are displaying all the good qualities but are not yet fixed in bhakti. And then among all the qualities, there are many qualities. You're not going to get fixed in all of them simultaneously. So, you know, you might get fixed in one quality way before I do, and I might get fixed in another quality way before you do. And if we look at ourselves and we say, well, you know, it depends what you want to focus on. If you want to focus on, well, these are the things I'm bad at, so you may say, well, okay, I must be at a really low stage because I'm bad at those things. But wait, but there's other things that I'm really good at, other things that I really have to gather. So which stage am I in? Am I in the stage up here where the things that I can do nicely for Krishna? Or am I in the stage here of the things that I struggle with? You know, you can't put yourself in some little container. I mean, one of the, the things that I hear a lot from devotees is that 
Krishna may reciprocate with them in some wonderful way. They'll be chanting in a kirtan or they'll be chanting japa and they may get a vision of Krishna and they may have some wonderful spiritual experience. And then they tend to discount it and say, well, I, I couldn't, that couldn't possibly be a real experience because I'm not elevated enough. Which by itself is a little odd. You know, if I'm saying, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, 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 please come, Radharani, please come. And someday Krishna knocks on the door and says, here I am. And say, excuse me, I'm not at the right stage yet. Would you please leave? <laughs> <laughs> Poor Krishna. <laughs> you know, it's like, you've been calling me for the last five years. You know, I thought I'd come by and say hello. He's like, no, no, please get out. I've got to wait until I'm pure. <laughs> you know? But I remember bringing this up to Burjan Prabhu, and he says, don't get hung up on these stages. If Krishna reciprocates with you in, in some wonderful way that's beyond your deserving, well, you know, celebrate. Don't don't get hung up in saying, well, I've got to be this or that. And Sachin Andamarsh talks about that too. He says, expect that Krishna's going to come. Expect that he's going to reciprocate with you. And he may do so. I mean, we read in the Bhagavatam about Daksha who was basically materialistic, and he was worshipping Lord Vishnu for materialistic purposes, and Lord Vishnu came before him. Pretty amazing. And, and he was somewhat offensive. I mean, he'd been offensive to Shiva, and later he was offensive to Narada, and so Lord Vishnu came before him, gave him an opportunity. Yeah. Krishna comes before the demons, even. They don't appreciate him, there's so many examples. Kaliya, when he saw Krishna, he's like, wow, he is beautiful. Let me kill him. <laughs> but Krishna gave him an opportunity even to the, to the demon. Or uh, Kaliyavana, who Krishna didn't even want to personally kill. He arranged him, which Shakunda to kill him. Kaliyavana also, he appreciated. He said, oh, that must be Krishna. He fits Narada's description. He was Narada. fits Narada's description. And he's so beautiful. Oh, let me kill him. One of the most interesting examples of that is the washerman in Mathura. This is described by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and the Chaitanya Bhagavat to Mukunda. I won't tell the whole background story, but Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said that the person who took birth as a washerman, for many, 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 many lifetimes, he did austerities to see God. I want to see God. So, okay, he got to take birth as a washerman in Mathura, and Krishna came in front of him. Here I am, you can see me. Now, what about serving me? Would you give me some cloth? I'm not going to give you any cloth. This is Kamsa's cloth. And after I read that, I understood why Krishna cut off his head. You know, here's this guy for millions of births. I want to see you, 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 I want to see you. Okay, here I am. Can you give me a piece of cloth? No. <laughs> so my point is that Krishna comes even in front of the demons. So why can't Krishna reciprocate with me? Why not? Even though I'm so unqualified and even though I'm so impure. So he can, and he can come when he wants. He's independent. And it may not fit exactly, you know. Well, it didn't happen just like this. <laughs> it didn't happen exactly like this. But it says in the books, you know, it has to happen exactly like this. Well, no, it's a general guide as to how one will advance. Each of us is going to advance very particularly. We have, a, as I said, we have an individual, personal relationship with Krishna that will blossom in its own individual way. And if people tell you the opposite, you just smile at them and say thank you. 
<laughs> if they, they want to think that, you know, it's that Krishna is a computer and you just push buttons and everybody has to push the same buttons and what is that? That's not to say there isn't a standard process that you follow, but our experience in following that process, the exact order in which we end up making progress, the service that we do, our, that's all going to be very individual. It's not going to be cookie-cutter. And it's going to be not even... You can't even talk about groups of individuals. You can say, well, it's like this for the... Like Bhakti Vinotekar will say, well, the Grahastas can do this, the renunciates can do this. But even then, it's, it becomes me. And be careful of anyone who's saying, everybody has to do this. I mean, there's certain things like that. There's certain ways of offering artik that are a particular ritual. But be careful about people who say, everybody has to chant their job exactly like this. Like I've heard people say, you should sit down in one place and not move for 16 minutes. Well, maybe that works for you. You know, I have a one-year-old child in the house. doesn't work well for me to do that because my kid would probably burn down the house if I did that. <laughs> or I'd have to do it when they're sleeping. I'd have to do it at 2 in the morning. <laughs> kind of thing. Or Prabhupada, when he was a grahasta, he chanted four rounds and then four rounds and four rounds and four rounds. So anyone who says, you know, everyone has to do exactly like this. Or people will, and people sometimes ask for that even. What is the perfect formula for studying Prabhupada's books? Give me the way to do it. And when I was, uh, was I in Wellington, I guess, at a ladies' retreat here a few years ago, so I was asked that question: What is the way to study Prabhupada's books? So I asked that. I said, "Okay, let's get let's get in a circle. Let's go around and everybody talk about how they study Prabhupada's books." It was amazing. One of the devotees said, "I look at the Sanskrit in the verse, and I try to remember any other verse that has those words in it." And then I look up the other verses and I connect which verse goes with which verse by the Sanskrit words. Someone else took the purports and turned it into questions and answers and put it up on an internet site for preaching to people. Another person, and I'm not making this up, another person took the purports and made them into songs. Another made them into poems. There was another who liked to study with a friend and they made the purports into dramas. I was like, and there were as many ways to study as there were people in the room. And three-quarters of those ways of study I had never even imagined. I would never imagine making a purport into a song, probably because I'm not very musical. I was thinking. And I was so happy that I hadn't gotten up in front of the group and told them, this is Ormila's way to study the scripture, and you should do it. <laughs> <laughs> and that, it was funny, because that's what they asked me to do. And they were initially very disappointed that I didn't do that. And at the end, we were also in alignment. You know, or we could also ask everybody, how, what's the way that you feel really enlivened chanting your japa? You know, sometimes I find devotees will take one particular quote of Prabhupada's. There's one particular one that flies around a lot. And this, this is the way to chant japa. Oh, well, what about this quote? What about this quote? What about this quote? And Prabhupada says apparently opposite things in different places because he's talking to different people. I mean, like, you know, the one in Geneva where Prabhupada says, chanting Hare Krishna means you make a diamond throne for Krishna in your heart. You seat him upon it. You bathe him with Ganga and Jamuna water. 
You dress him and ornament him and offer full worship. He said, and this is actually accepted by Krishna. The service offered within the mind. So Prabhupada saying that when you chant Hare Krishna, you meditate on serving Krishna within your mind, putting him on a diamond throne. And then there's the one that everybody likes to pass around, which was, that was a lecture. Remember, a lecture is, a, is much more of a general instruction. Then in a conversation, when a particular individual went up to Srila Prabhupada, said, Srila Prabhupada, what do I do with my mind when I chant? Prabhupada said, just chant in here, what's the question of mind? <laughs> and that's the one everybody likes to pass around. And I'm like, well, why don't you pass around the other one? <laughs> well, which there's, you know, dozens more like that. Where Prabhupada will say, you, you know, you've seen the deity. Why can't you think of the deity while you are chanting? What is the difficulty? And then this other devotee, he says, what is the question of mind? Just chant that. So, you know, what's going to work for you? Just to sit and chant in here, to meditate on the form of the deity, to meditate on bathing Krishna in your heart with a di- on a diamond throne with Ganga and Jamuna water? Or Bhaktivinoda Thakur talks about you can go into a dark room and cover your eyes and your ears. Now, most people, if they do that, they fall asleep. I'm going to have a really meditative job. <laughs> you know. But I know people for whom that, that's very effective. And they'll say, you know, I just put in earplugs and an eye shade and go in a dark place. And, you know, also some of the Acharyas talk about meditating on the words of the, the written words of the mantra. So you can't say, well, this is, you know, Mahaprabhu said there's no hard and fast rules for chanting Hare Krishna. So people have, what's the hard and fast rule? <laughs> and there, there isn't one. It's individual. That wasn't what I wanted to hear. I wanted a particular mechanistic formula. How are you going to have a mechanistic formula for love? You know, you sort of kind of can. I was talking to a couple today who were engaged to be married, and they said, should we get some of these relationship books? I said, sure, they're helpful. But it's not exactly a formula. Give your wife roses every Tuesday at 10 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Here they are, dear. You love me now? I mean, you know. It's not going to work. Why doesn't my wife love me? I followed all the formulas. But it's not a mechanical relationship. I mean, if anything impedes our Krishna consciousness, is thinking that Krishna is a machine. Okay, I'm going to try really, really hard, and I'm going to make you come, Krishna. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, 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 Hare, Hare, come on, where are you? (laughs) You know, it doesn't work like that. Stop trying so hard. Do you understand what I'm saying? Surrender. It's not like, it's not controlling Krishna, squeezing into a little box. All right, so we have prasadam? Yes. Thank you very much. All glories to Shulhu. Thank you.